Bibles tonight, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 4. And we are delighted to come back to the book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights. I enjoy this study very, very much. Wednesdays I get a chance to uh, stay at home and, and work on the Wednesday night sermons. And I had an opportunity to prepare a sermon this week on some later verses that we come to chapter four in chapter 4. Just amazing to me how the book of Ephesians points out so clearly where we were and where we are now if you're saved, how far that you've come, where God's brought you from if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And just a great book for us to study. Some people have said that if you get a good grip on two books of the Bible, the Gospel of John and the book of Romans, then you're well on your way to discovering what, exactly what God wants you to know through His Word because those two books express some very important doctrinal themes. And understanding the book of Ephesians is dependent upon also knowing the gospel of John, I believe, and understanding the covenant of redemption that God the Father had with Jesus Christ. And then also the book of Romans is very important because Romans and Ephesians uh, very closely parallel one another in some of its themes. So uh, understanding Ephesians is also dependent upon how well that we understand the book of Romans. Well, last week we were uh, talking about the... Whoa, what happened there? Last week we are... Does everybody hear me all right? Is that too loud? Scared me. Last week our message was about preparations for ministry. And I concentrated on two themes in that sermon, if you remember. The first one was the abundance of spiritual gifts that God gives us for ministry. And then secondly, the authority for those gifts... And, of course, we learn that the gifts are given by God's grace and the authority for the gifts rests in Jesus Christ alone. He alone has the authority to dispense and give gifts as he sees fit. Well, this evening, I'd like to talk to you about specializations of ministry. Next week, we're going to talk about mechanizations of ministry. But this evening, we're going to take our text verse from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 11. But actually, I want to go back and we're going to catch up a little bit with the reading here and start with verse number 7. So if you'd stand with me, please. We want to look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse number 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And then our text is verse number 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you'd show us some things from your holy word. Help us to understand better what you'd have us to know. We just thank you, Lord, for the great God that you are and all the blessings that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Ephesians chapter 4 begins, as I've told you before, the practical side or the practical applications of the book of Ephesians. And what Paul is doing from the point that we started reading in chapter 4 is to begin to apply the doctrines that he taught us in chapters 1 through 3. And we've learned one thing, that as we have started this practical section, that we haven't strayed very far away from doctrinal manners. Uh, Paul does not leave the doctrinal side behind, and that's because right practice is based upon right doctrine. Remember that phrase. I've used it over and over again. Right practice 
is based upon right doctrine. And so we have to have our doctrine correct. So as we go through the rest of this book, which is all practical, mostly practical, we will have an opportunity to look at some doctrinal things as we look at the practical. Now, last week we were studying uh, verses 7 through 10, and we saw in those verses how that Paul inserted a parenthesis into those verses. He puts a break into the section where he's talking about gifts, and just for a moment here, he begins to expound upon the authority for the gifts that God gives. And one of the things that we learned from those verses we studied last week is how that sometimes people can take scriptures out of their context. They can wrest the scriptures from their context and try to prove uh, false doctrines. Now, verses 8 through 10 have been used by Baptists all the way up to Roman Catholics to teach some, uh, some wrong things. Uh, Some people believe, as we talked about last week, that during those three days that Jesus was in the tomb, that he actually descended into hell, and that he did one of two things. The Roman Catholics, uh, one of the things they believe about it is that he preached the gospel to people who are lost and gave them a second chance to be saved. And then there are many Baptists who believe that his purpose of going to hell was to deliver saints that had been kept there captive in the underworld had not yet gone to heaven, yet they were believers in God, they were saved people, and yet they had not been able to go to heaven, and they wouldn't go until Christ went to the cross and then descended into hell to take them to their place in heaven. Well, that's a misconception of Scripture. And now that we have the misconceptions aside, we can go on and and go over that break that, that Paul has given us and start talking about the gifts of the Spirit and using the gifts that God gives. And once again, that is the practical side of our Christianity, using our God-given gifts. So this evening, I want to discuss the subject, specializations of ministry. Now, let's look at that 11th verse once again, because here Paul is showing us that gifts of ministry are different. God has gifted people in different ways to work in the church. It says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, the first thing that we would note about this verse is that the list of gifts that Paul gives is not an exhaustive list. These aren't all the gifts that we find in the church. In fact, if you go through the scriptures, you'll find out that they list at least 20 or more gifts that God gives. And uh, I don't know exactly how many gifts there are because I think uh, sometimes God or the writers use uh, a different names for the same gift. But somewhere around 20 gifts are mentioned in scripture and none of these gifts are duplications of the other. But these are special gifts that God gives to work in special ways. Now, there are actually five lists of gifts that we find in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10 is a list. Uh, The same chapter, verses 28 through 30. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Our text verse here in Ephesians chapter 11. And then also 1 Peter 4, verse 11 gives us some gifts. And the gifts that we find in the scriptures are things such as apostleship, preaching, wisdom, knowledge, prophecy, healing, tongues, many other different things and different gifts that God has given. Now, this evening, though, we're not going to concentrate on all those other gifts, but I want to speak specifically about what Paul talks about in this verse and as we talk about the specializations of ministry. Now, as we think about ministry, first of all, we want to talk about the Christ of ministry. And I don't think that I could ever emphasize this enough that 
the Christ of ministry is the person who's important. Because everything that we do in the church is, is for the cause of Christ. And not just for the cause of Christ, but also for Christ personally. And that's because the Bible teaches us that the church is Christ's possession. And so everything that we do in the church in some way or another brings honor and glory to Christ. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and not unto men. Work for the Lord. If you could name the, the central theme of Colossians, we would find it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. It's the preeminence of Christ. And there Paul writes, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So first we can learn here, first and foremost, that Christ is the head of the body. If you look at me as the head of the church, if you look at the Pope as the head of the church or any other man, then you have a misconception, a misunderstanding of who actually controls and operates the church. Christ does that. The great fallacy and heresy of Roman Catholicism is that they have placed an earthly head over the church and given a man the authority to control things in the church. But you know there's nowhere in the scriptures where we find that any singular man, not any man, ever took authority over God's church. Not one single person ever believed, not even the apostle Paul, as great as he was, believed that he could rule the church. Now the Pope may in fact be the head of a church, but it's not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the church, God's church, does not have a head on this earth. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's the one who rules all things. Now, sadly, uh, folks, there, there are many Baptists who have become confused on this particular issue as well. You know, maybe they don't have a worldwide head for their church, but there are plenty of pastors who are the popes in their own little kingdoms. And uh, they're, they're fellows that really have to rule people's lives and have control over everything that goes on. And they rule their churches by edict, and you don't question anything that they say. And then along with that idea comes the notion of many people that uh, it's all right for a person to build an empire. A pastor can build an empire for himself. And many of these ministries are, are testimonies to the organizational skills of pastors, that's to be sure. But many times they say little or nothing at all about the Lord of the church. Uh, this, just recently, I received a, a beautiful... Uh, tribute to a pastor. It was a, a very nicely bound coffee table sized book that was a tribute to a pastor. And I read over and over again in that book about how great the pastor was, but I didn't see very much at all about how great the Lord of the church is. Folks, I don't think it's our purpose to, to magnify men and to applaud men for what they do. And I think we ought to recognize people when they serve the Lord faithfully. There's nothing wrong with that. But whenever it comes to the place that the man of the church overshadows the Christ of the church, then things are turned around. They're seriously mixed up. Now, I, I, I believe that the, the pastor uh, has a ministry of service. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But the pastor is a servant of the church. And really, he's no different than any other person in the church as far as it comes to serving the needs of others. Now, the second thing that we note about the Christ of ministry is that we are members of his body. Christ is the head of the church, and we function under the head. Everything flows down from the head. Now, here, as Paul puts it in verse number 7, he says, "...we are given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ." And the gift here, the grace that he's talking about here, is not our salvation... 
Because everybody, of course, who's a true member of the Lord's church has already been united to Christ in salvation. What this is speaking about is that God has given us grace to fulfill our particular function in his church. And we're to function in the body of Christ. So that's where the gifts come in. We're put into the body of Christ to fulfill a particular function. And we all can't perform the same function. Uh, not everybody has the same job because if we, uh, if we think that we're all going to do the same thing, we all have to have the same positions, then the whole body can't function. All the work's not going to be done. Now, Paul explains that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 12. He begins 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 1, by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Then he goes on in verse number 4 to say, Now there are diversities of gift, gifts, but the same spirit. And then as he makes that statement, he goes on to explain all these diversities of gifts. And then he sets this up to to show forth an analogy of the human body. And then when we finally get down to verse number 12, he shows us how the human body is analogous to the working of the church. And then in verse number 14, he says, For the body is not one member, but many. And from there, of course, he goes on to show how every part of your body performs a different function. And the different parts of our body are not exactly alike. They perform different functions. And all the body, as I just said, cannot perform the same function. The human body doesn't work that way. So what Paul is trying to show us here is that God is gifting people in the church in different ways for the ministry to be carried out. So no two members may not or will have the same particular function to perform. Now, just as a human body doesn't have any useless body parts, the church doesn't have any useless members. And the only reason that a person would become useless in his church is because he isn't using the gift that God has given him. Now, here's something that that every church member ought to know, and that is that we have a church not just to give you some place that you can go on Sundays and Wednesday evenings. We don't have a church in order to provide entertainment for people. We have a church where we can serve Christ. We have a church where every minister in the body is to have a useful part of what we do here. And our purpose in Christ's body is to promote his kingdom in the world and also to promote his preeminence in the world. Now, next I want to talk to you about the calling to ministry. Now, you might assume that since I said that every person in the church is gifted to some particular ministry, that God's given us all a gift to use, you might think that, well, when you join a church, then automatically you know what that gift is. You automatically know what the function you have to perform, and it just comes automatically to you. Well, actually, I think it's a lot more specific than that. And I think that when God gives gifts for ministry, he calls a person specifically to his ministry. And I think that's true from the pastor right on down to the nursery workers. And by that, I don't mean that nursery workers are on the bottom rung of service. I certainly don't mean that. But everybody, all of us, we ought to consider that in whatever capacity God has chosen for us to serve, he's the one who calls us to that service. And if you look at it that way, I mean, if we truly believe that what, it, what, what job I have to do in the church is the thing that God has given me to do, that would end all the jealousy about where people serve. And many times there is jealousy over a certain church positions. But when we recognize that it's God's prerogative and God's prerogative alone to make the call, that ought to end all of our jealousies. Now, just recently, 
we had our church elections. And, I, and I'll have to tell you, I saw uh, one of the greatest examples of humility that I've seen since I've been in church. In all the years that I've been in church, uh, what I heard about this election was one, just one thing that really thrilled my heart, and I, and I just saw an example of humility. In our election, we had five men who were running for the office of deacon. And either one of the two men that were running, Brother Eric and Brother John, uh, either one of those men make a fine addition to our deacon board. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. But the truth of the matter is we had, we had four offices and five men that were running. And so that means that somebody has to lose the election. Well, when the election was over, I was speaking to Brother John and Brother John Bunn, and, and, and after that was through, he just graciously, very graciously, commended Eric. And he said, I know that Eric's going to do a great job. He said, he's going to make a good deacon. And then you know what Brother John said? He said, I'm going to keep on serving where God wants me to serve, and I'll be faithful in what God wants me to do. Man, I tell you, if if everybody had that kind of spirit and that kind of attitude, we wouldn't have problems in a church. This is what it's all about, folks. We serve at the pleasure of the Master. It's not about our personalities. It's not about our abilities. It's all about what the Lord wants. Now, I want you to notice then first where this call comes from. It comes from Christ and not from the church. Now, since I've been talking about deacon election, let me just use that as an example. You might, you might wonder, where do we get our candidates? How do we approve the nominees? You know, people fill out a, a paper with all different kinds of nominations on it, and, and then that list gets whittled down. And, and how do we actually choose the nominees that are able to, to, to go into the election to be elected? Well, the first thing that we do, of course, is to apply the test of Scripture. We're looking for people who have scriptural qualifications for the office. We find those qualifications in Acts chapter 6 and also in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, this coming Sunday night, I'll be talking about those qualifications. But that's the first place that we go. We go to the Bible to see if these men are qualified. And so we, 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 we choose the right men that we think can, can take this office. But as we vote as a church for the people who are going to be in those offices, we believe that the vote is directed by the Lord. Now, that principle was actually laid down when Matthias was chosen to be an apostle to replace Judas. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 1 for just a minute. We're going to read about this. And while you're turning there, let me just sort of set the stage for you. Uh, The question is, who chose Matthias? Did the apostles believe that they chose him, or did they believe that God chose him? Now, I'll give you the preliminaries to it. Peter stood up before the apostles, and he told them that one needed to be chosen to replace Judas. And he explained that Judas, Judas betrayed his apostleship. And then he talked about how with remorse that Judas went out and hanged himself. Now, Peter explained that all of that, what Judas did, was a fulfillment of Scripture. And then he went to another Old Testament Scripture, and he said, now somebody has to be chosen to take his apostleship. Now, we find this in verse number 20 of chapter 1. It says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and let his bishopric, and that means his apostleship, let his bishopric another take. 
Then then, uh, Peter began to lay out the qualifications for this new apostle. And if you look at verse number 21, he says, Wherefore, of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whither these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, it's clear as we read those scriptures that the vote that the apostles took was a ratification of what they believed that God had already decided. In verse number 24, it says, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whither of these two thou hast chosen. You know, I've often thought about this scripture and how that vote came out. Two men, Matthias and Justice, were chosen to run for this office. I mean, they were the ones that were put up before the people, and justice lost. And we would probably feel sorry for justice. I mean, we would think, you know, that, that's just too bad that he wasn't able to become apostle. But I don't think that justice was the kind of man who felt sorry for himself. I believe that he was the kind of man, if, 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 he, if he had all of these qualifications that had been outlined here, he was the kind of man who believed that God's will would be done. So we don't feel sorry for justice. It was God's choice. And I believe that God directs that choice when we choose people for different ministries that we have in the church. Now, I would say that I felt that way when, when I decided or that uh, I would become the pastor when I was elected by the people. I thought that that was God's will. If I didn't think it was God's will, I would have chosen some other avenue of service. But the point that I really want to make here is this is God's call and not the church's call. Now, certainly the church is the one who has to extend the call I mean, God gives us that right to do that. We, we choose out the people who are going to run for these different offices. But the person must have the feeling that this is what God wants him to do. And the church has to have the feeling and understanding that this is what God also wants the church to do. So there's a combination here. So we don't call ourselves to serve. God calls us. And whenever we decide that we're going to make the call, that's when our church becomes ripe for all kinds of jealousies and factions in it. Now, I might also add this, that the call to the pastorate is not for some outside ministry of our church to decide for us. There aren't any other bodies and there aren't any other churches who can decide who should be the pastor of our church. And neither is it for for people to, to go behind the backs of leadership, to try to set themselves up to take over an office like the pastorate. That's not, that's not a God-honoring thing to do. I mean, the Lord, the Bible tells us that, that, that God does not like people who sow discord among the brethren. This is a church decision that needs to be made. Now, folks, we make a huge mistake when we do the calling instead of God. So what we can't do, we can't call people to be missionaries, and we can't call people to be pastors, and I really don't think that we ought to encourage people whom God has not called to try to take on those kinds of positions. We're just not simply equipped to do that. God makes the call. And I will say this as well. I know some people don't agree with me on this, but I, I don't think it's the right thing for us to do to force young people into Bible colleges if that's not what God has called them to do. 
I mean, if your child is never called to be a pastor and never called to be a missionary, so be it. Uh, a child, uh, your child serving in his own local church is just as important as anybody who serves in a tent somewhere or a hut in Africa. Serving your own church is not a dishonoring thing to do. So pray for your kids to be pastors and missionaries, that's fine. But also pray, God, if that's not your will, use them right here in the church. Use them in a church where they can build this church for the cause of Christ. Now our text here says, and he gave some, and you might underline the word he there, because actually in the original language it's even more emphatic than this. It says he himself gave some. So God does the calling and not us. Now, the second thing about this calling is it is to be tried and tested. The calling is to be tried and tested. It's the duty of the church to try and test the individuals that are called. Now, a person might come up to you. They might come up to the pastor. They might come to the church and they'll say, well, I've been called to do this particular ministry, and so this is what I'm going to enter into. Well, it's not just what that person feels that they're called to do, because God is also going to let the church know if that person is called to that ministry. Martin Lloyd-Jones relates a story about how there was a young man who came to Charles Haddon Spurgeon once, and he told Spurgeon, he said, I've been called by God to preach in the Metropolitan Tabernacle on Thursday night. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, well, that's a little bit strange, because God didn't say anything to me about it. And he said... When the Lord calls through the Spirit, he tells the young man, but he also tells Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, when the first deacons of the church were chosen, the apostles told the people to search out among them. He said, choose out. They said, choose out seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Those seven were a God-directed choice. But the whole process began with identifying the men trying and testing them according to the word of God. And those first deacons certainly proved they're worthy. It's at least two of them that we know did. Stephen became the first, one of the first martyrs, and Philip is the only person uh, in the Bible who's called an evangelist. Now, I don't have any doubt that all seven of them were very distinguished men, but at least we know those two were worthy of the calling. Then the third thing that we notice about this, it's not always equal. This calling is not always equal, but it's always essential. We might not all be called to equal jobs in the church, but we are all called to essential jobs. Now, the listing in our text says apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Those aren't equal jobs. And we'll look at that in just a minute. These aren't equal jobs, but they were all essential jobs. For example, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and God has set some in the church first apostles. Now, when he says first apostles, he's speaking about a ranking here. How he set these in the church first. These are foundational items. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. So apostles were first in the church. And they had a ministry that was unique and different from any other ministry that God gave. But God also installed other essential gifts in the church. Now when you think about it, what church survives very long without a good pastor? And what church does very well and builds up people in the faith and edifies people in the faith if you don't have good teachers? And what church keeps its finances straight if you don't have a good treasurer? And what church uh, can, can have a good organization that operates efficiently without good deacons? And what church has 
God-honoring services where people can listen to the word that's being preached if we don't have godly ladies that are taking care of children. All of these jobs, they're essential in our church. Every work is essential. And so the Lord specializes and He equips people for the ministry. Now, I want to move on here, and we're going to talk uh, for the next little bit uh, about these particular ministries that are mentioned in the text verse. Now, once again, we read it. Paul said, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. So the third thing we want to talk about is the categories of ministry. Now, here we have four categories. Now, actually, if you look at that, there are five different, five different uh, designations mentioned But I believe there's only four categories actually given here. And that's because I believe when Paul uses the word pastor, teachers, pastors and teachers, he's speaking of the same office. Now, as I said, this is not an exhaustive list. But let's consider these four gifts that God gives in the ministry. Now, I think that we have two and possibly three of these offices that are mentioned that are temporary offices. So first of all, some of the offices were temporary Now, let's look at the apostles. This was a temporary office. Now, there's some people who take the word apostle, and they they take it in a very generalized sense. And the word apostle just means someone who's sent. So anyone who's sent with the message of Christ in one way or another is, is an apostle. And if that's our definition of apostle, then there were many people in the New Testament who were apostles. But I don't think that Paul is talking about that. He's talking about here about this special office of apostleships when he's speaking about the church office. He's speaking about a very highly specialized group of people that were chosen out specifically by Jesus Christ. Later, as we just read, one was specially chosen after Judas uh, hanged himself. And then we have one more apostle, the apostle Paul, who was added uh, in another special way a little bit later on. So that would make 13 men and 13 men only who had the office of apostleship. Now, in the book of Acts that we read just a moment ago, we, we read about the election of Matthias, and Peter outlined the qualifications for an apostle. If you want to look back there in Acts chapter 1, verse 22 again, he says, "...beginning from the baptism of John..." Unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So the apostles had to have the baptism of John. They had to have been, uh, been with the disciples from the beginning of John's ministry to the time, all the way up to the time that Christ was crucified. And so that means that this person who's chosen as an apostle had to have a personal acquaintance with the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, it says here that he had to be a witness of the resurrection. In other words, he had to be among that group of people who saw Jesus after he arose from the dead. Now, we know in another scripture, it tells us that there were about 500 people who saw that Jesus arose from the dead. So that would tell us right there that the potential pool of apostles would have been limited to 500 people or less. And I suppose if you take the women out of there, that you narrow the number down quite a bit. But we know know from that number of people that the whole number of people who were chosen, could have been chosen to be apostles, came down to two men. And that was Justice and Matthias that we talked about. Now, in addition to that, an apostle was given the authority to speak Scripture. In other words, he, he, he was specially, especially inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us Scripture. Now, a question might come to our minds is how does the apostle Paul figure into this? Because Paul does not fit all of those uh, special qualifications that Matthias had. 
Well, I think that Paul explains it very well to us when he relates his conversion experience because Paul was given a unique calling. His calling was much different. He did see Jesus after he arose from the grave and Christ spoke to him personally and gave him the, 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 his commission and his office of apostleship. Paul called himself one who was born out of due time. And what he meant by that is that he was not among that same group of disciples or apostles that Jesus uh, first chose. But Paul had seen the resurrected Christ. And we also know that Paul wrote Scripture. I don't think that any of us would deny that Paul wrote Scripture. Peter talked about this, and he put Paul's writings on par with Scripture. And here's what he said in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, "...an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his apostles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to be understood." which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. Now there we see that phrase, other scriptures, and that shows us that Peter is equating Paul's writings with the scriptures. So he's saying Paul wrote scripture. Well, Paul would never have been accepted among the apostles and never recognized as an apostle if he hadn't seen the risen Christ. So these apostles, other apostles, firmly believe that Paul had the ability to write Scripture. And then to those qualifications, we can add that the apostles were gifted with supernatural powers like healing and speaking in tongues, casting out demons, and such miracles as those. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw that the gifts of, of the Spirit the speaking in tongues and all those kinds of things could only be given by the laying on of an apostle's hands. So it's evident there aren't any apostles today. No one has the authority to write scripture today. No one has ever seen the resurrected Christ. None of us have seen him personally. None of us can perform miracles or lay hands on anyone and give them special gifts of the Spirit. So the office of an apostle is a temporary office. And so by definition, the office could not be perpetual. So that rules out people who say that they are successors to the apostles. Who is it primarily that says that? Anybody know? The Pope. The Pope claims to be a successor to the apostle Peter. He can't be. There are no successors to the apostles. Then we look at this, the office of a prophet. That's also a temporary office. Now, here, the, the word prophet, when it speaks of a prophet, is somebody who speaks under direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the office of the prophet is very closely connected to that of the apostles. Now, when the Bible was completed, there wasn't any more need for special revelations because God has given us everything that we need to know about him in the scriptures. God's given us all that we need to know. And as you read the scriptures, you go to the pastoral epistles, and those were some of the last ones that were written in the Bible. There's not any mention at all of the prophets in those scriptures. So that shows us that that was already being phased out. The scriptures are nearly complete, so there's no more revelation given. And of course, when we read the book of Revelation, it says very specifically there that we can't add to or take away from the words of prophecy that are given in the book of Revelation. And I think that includes the rest of the scriptures as well. We can't add to or take away. Now again, the Bible tells us through its own word that everything that God has given us here is, is everything that we need to make us wise unto salvation. We don't need anything other than the written word of God. Now that tells us automatically 
That when people come up with some other kinds of revelations and they try to add things to what God has said, it's not of God. So what does that do? It rules out people like the Mormons. It rules out the Seventh-day Adventists. It rules out Jehovah Witnesses. And in fact, it rules out another huge group. Who? The Roman Catholics as well. Now, Catholicism has added to the revealed Word of God for centuries. They've, they've always been doing that. Their traditions supersede the Scripture. But the Roman Catholics have no authority to walk over, add, or change, or take anything away from God's Word. The Scriptures are complete as we have them. The Holy Spirit has given us one revealed truth, and all this truth is contained in the Bible that we have. Now, thirdly, and some of you may disagree with this statement, the office of evangelist is no longer present in the church. Now, I know someone will immediately get irate and say, well, Pastor, you're crazy. I mean, we, we've had evangelists come to this church and speak, and we go to places where evangelists are speaking. I mean, surely the church has an evangelist today, or there's the office of evangelist. Well, don't get too upset before you hear me out here, because what I'm saying is what we call an evangelist today is not the same thing that the Bible calls an evangelist. Now, let me show you why. I like the way that, uh, uh, starting off here, the way that John MacArthur puts this. He explains the word evangelist is only used three times in the Scriptures. One time in uh, Acts 21, verse 8, that's where Philip is called an evangelist. And again, uh, he's the only person in Scripture who is ever called an evangelist. It's once used in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. And there, Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist. And then, of course, in the scripture that we're reading tonight. And then MacArthur says this, if you would listen. Philip demonstrates that the evangelist is not a man with ten suits and ten sermons who runs a road show. New Testament evangelists were missionaries and church planners, much like the apostles, but without the title and miraculous gifts, who went where Christ was not named and led people to faith in the Savior. They, they then taught the new believers the word, built them up, and moved on to new territory. Then MacArthur goes on to say, Timothy illustrates the fact that an evangelist can be identified with local churches in a prolonged ministry for the purpose of preaching and expounding the true gospel in order to counter false teachers and their damning message and to establish sound doctrine and godliness. Now, you can see by that definition that what we call an evangelist today is not the same as an evangelist in the Bible. Our evangelists do not labor in the church. They don't expound doctrines where Christ is not known. Our evangelists spend time in multiple churches, doing revival meetings, going to conferences, and pumping up people that are already saved. Now, hear me out, because... I don't criticize what we call an evangelist. That's not my whole purpose here. All I'm saying is that the biblical office of evangelist, as it's described in the New Testament, is not the same thing that we have today. Now, someone might ask the question, is it possible for us to have a New Testament evangelist today? And that may very well be possible, uh, except that it may be that the evangelist, it looks like, worked very closely with the apostles, and they worked and built upon the foundation that the apostles laid. And so since we don't have any apostles today, then we wouldn't have the same thing as the evangelists that we have in the New Testament. Now, once again, I want to tell you, it's not a criticism of what our evangelists do today. It's simply a statement that it's not exactly the same thing that was done in the New Testament. And I don't think what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, let me relate to you uh, very quickly an example of this. Uh, when my father retired from the ministry... 
we hired a pastor. We called a pastor to our church who was an evangelist, an evangelist like we have today. And we found out, just as MacArthur said, here was a man who had about 20 sermons, and that's all he had. And everything that he preached was repackaging those 20 sermons that he knew. So he was not somebody who labored to expound doctrine. He was never that kind of a person. And within five or six years of being the pastor of the church, the church was destroyed. Now, I was already in California by that time, but the church was destroyed by someone who was not a biblical evangelist. Now, here's what I want to tell you about this. Don't compare the rah-rah sermons of the evangelist to what your pastor preaches. These are two different purposes. They're two entirely different things. Now, I've told our men before, you know, I think it's great for us to go down to the master's men in, in Fresno and, uh, and to hear the preaching down there. But we would not want to have a steady diet of that kind of preaching. And you know why? It would kill the church. That, that, that kind of preaching is not intended to be deep, in do, be deep in doctrine and to build and edify the members of the body of Christ. That's to charge us up and to get us going. And that's fine for its purpose. But you can't substitute that for your everyday preaching that you have in a church. So it's quite unfair to say, oh, I got all excited when I went down to the master's men and I had to come back and hear the pastor and all he preached was doctrine. <laughs> Always doctrine. Well, we need doctrine. We won't be strong Christians without doctrine. Let's go get charged up sometimes, but let's, let's don't discount the value of the preaching that pastors do in their churches week after week after week. They may not be exciting and flip, turn back flips and hit the ceiling every now and then, but it's still worthy to be listened to. So there are temporary offices. But now Paul mentions one more office. Some offices were permanent, and that's our next point. The one he mentions as a permanent office is the pastor. And as I said, I believe he means the pastor-teacher to be one office. I don't have time to expound fully about the pastorate tonight. Next week we're going to study verse number 12 and talk about mechanizations of ministry. And we'll talk a little bit more about this then. But, the, apostle, but the, uh, rather the, the, uh, the office of the pastor in the New Testament was the chief office for the church after the apostles. Now, we don't have the apostles and the prophets any longer. And so now, the, the, the chief office in the church is that of the pastor. Now, the pastor simply means, the word pastor simply means a shepherd. It's his job to shepherd the flock. And involved in shepherding, is instructing and defending God's people who are members of the local New Testament church. Now, I want to emphasize, as I say this, that it is the chief duty of the pastor to lead you, to feed you the Word of God, to try to strengthen you. But as the pastor does that, he is a fellow laborer. Now, I do it, and all pastors do it, as a minister. And the word minister means servant. I mean, that's, that's all that it amounts to. The word minister means servant. Paul never called himself to be anything more than a servant. And so God forbid that I should make myself anything more than a servant of Christ. And further, God forbid, folks, that I should make myself anything more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what did he do? He made himself a servant. Jesus washed the disciples' feet because he was willing to be a servant. Paul said but made himself, this is in Philippians, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And then Jesus said in John 13, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, 
ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. I think there may be a lot of pastors who are yet to find out that they are not greater than the one who sent them. That is, if they've been sent at all. So these are specializations of ministry. What God has done, he's called us all to work in his church. He's given us different duties to perform. And as we perform these God-given gifts through his grace in the church, we build up, we edify the church, the people in the church. But at the same time, we also magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I encourage everybody, find out what that gift is. Don't neglect the gift that's in you and use it in your church. And we'll grow as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. Uh, We ask you, Lord, to bless your word to our hearts. Help us to take it in and consider this, these great gifts of ministry that you've given. And I pray, Lord, that every member of this church would be a part, have a part in ministry here, in serving you, exalting your name, and edifying the body of Christ. Blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.